Welcome to the Free Your Energy podcast. 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 I wanted to create a space where I could chat with thought leaders, spiritual luminaries, authors, and health and wellness experts to discuss how we can free ourselves spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, financially, and beyond. I care about mindset, movement, and positive relationships. And I created this podcast for people who also care about these topics and expansion. 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 I think my first question for you is how, how does it feel? It feels awesome. I feel like uh, when my editor told me I was a New York Times bestseller, it was like a whole body experience. I was like, I couldn't talk. I was jumping. And um, I describe it like, I feel like you usually talk about like exorcisms from a demon. It felt like I was experiencing exorcism from an angel. Like I was just like floating. It was just, yeah, it was definitely a life, a lifetime high. Was that something that you kind of expected or did it just come out of like left field when you got the news that you're a New York times bestselling author? I planned for it strategically, Mm. but of course you can't expect it. So I hoped, you know, and I, and I figured it wouldn't happen, you know, because I'm not someone who has like a huge following or anything. Um, so it was like, I'm going to try for it and hope and hope that it goes somewhere. Cause I know if I assume just cause I have a, a smaller following that it won't go anywhere, then that's going to become true. Cause I'm not going to act to make it become true. So I, I did plan for strategically, but I was still shocked and surprised that it actually worked out. What are some of the things that you did to plan strategically for, for that to happen? Yeah, well, the big thing is, is understanding that, um, you know, to be a New York Times bestseller, it's not about how many books you sell. It's about how many books you sell in a week, right? So um, you could sell more books than me, but if I sell more books in a week, I can make the list and you don't, right? So that is why it requires strategy. So for me, it was like every podcast I was on, I was like, can you come out in that first week? Um, when I, I write for psychology today. And so I strategically created like high, five high value articles and I launched them all in the first week and all your pre-orders count for your first week. And so that first week is really the week that you have the highest chance of making the list. Last time we spoke, you were really excited because you had just I'm pretty sure you had just signed the deal for the book. And Mm. so you were kind of like in the beginning stages of putting everything together. Uh, And so I'm curious to know, when you first had the idea for the book and you were first writing your, you know, your proposal, your rough draft versus like the end version that's actually out now, what are some of the things that you went through as, as as a writer, as a researcher, Uh, that you personally learned from the work that you were doing? Yeah, that's a great question. Like I have, you know, I feel like I can call my relationship to research kind of spiritual. Um, It's like, I'm very skeptical of information and research is what like can, can convince me of things. And So in some ways it's like another person might go to like a mentor or a coach, like I'll go to the research to be like, okay, this is what I need to do. So in each chapter of the book, you know, it's a book on friendship. And I approach this topic, not as someone who was like, I was just amazing at making friends and here's what I did, but rather someone who was like, I am so passionate about friendship and I can read research and I wish someone was communicating the science so all of us could make and keep better friends. So each chapter, it's like, I'm like, I've screwed this up. I've screwed this up. I've screwed this up. I've screwed this up. But here's what some of the best researchers who are studying this topic, spending their whole lives dedicated to this topic. I'm trying to curate what some of the best advice that they give. So, you know, in some ways, and it's, it's based on attachment theory, my book, which I don't know if you want me to get into, but it's basically how we um, how we kind of un- our unconscious assumptions about how people will treat us based on our past relationships, right? So a lot of uh, what atta- learning about attachment research is really powerful because it's almost like things that you wouldn't necessarily know unless you have research to to tell you this, right? So for me, for example, 
you know, there were times when my anxious attached, anxious, anxiously attached people, they feel, they fear abandonment. And so they always think people are going to abandon them. There are times when that came out, like when I did a chapter on conflict and working through conflict and talked about how conflict avoided I was because I felt like friends would kind of back away if I tried to address a problem. But then me reading a study that said having open empathic conflict is actually linked to deeper intimacy. And I needed that study to tell me, right? Because as, as an anxiously attached person, my associations with conflict were like attack, you know, monopoly game throwed over, you know, like me versus you, antagonistic. So that that research study, you know, as many research studies, the culmination of research studies have really changed my life because they've told me when I'm doing things wrong and they've given me the path forward and I trust what they're saying. Um, and that's like the whole, that's whole, that's the whole book. It's giving us a bird's eye view of like dynamics that we might have in our relationships. And we don't understand, we don't understand how maybe some of our assumptions are assumptions. We think they're the truth about the world, right? You'll hear people say like, nobody can be trusted, for example, thinking that's the truth and everyone else is naive or everybody's going to let you down at the end of the day, right? We think we've just learned the truth, right? And so the research can tell you like, oh, that's an assumption. And here's how that assumption is negatively impacting your life. And you could actually make a different assumption. What I find interesting in, I I have the book on, on the way here, Platonic, how the science of attachment can help you make and keep friends. So I haven't been able to read this book yet. And um, I can't wait to get it because it's just so cool to be, you know, to see it from when it's birth to now it's here. Totally. And uh, I'll let you know w- when I get the book. And so awesome. I'm, I'm curious, if you don't know your attachment style, do you think that it will be harder to make friends as an adult? Do you think that that's like a crucial step is like learning your attachment style? I think what's crucial is that we all learn securely attached behaviors, right? And so we learn the healthy behaviors in friendship. We don't necessarily need to know our, it could be helpful, but I I think what's most critical is that we learn what does it look like to have a healthy friendship? Because a lot, for a lot of us, that just really wasn't modeled for us. Um, and so what we may think is healthy is not healthy or what, like, you know, this, uh, this one thing that I talk about in the book is like this whole conversation on boundaries that we have. Right. And it's like, it's kind of like, tell your friend that you're unavailable. If they're like crying hysterically and they need you because you need to set a boundary and you need some time for yourself. Right. And yes, we do need time for yourself. Yes, we do need boundaries, but I think in some ways, Sometimes those boundaries can be walls. Those boundaries can be ways to skirt our inherent interdependence, right, on each other. And um, and so, you know, for me in, in that chapter, I landed on this concept of like mutuality, which means you consider the other person's needs and your needs and find something that works for both of you, right? So if, you know, you're in a state of crisis, I'm going to prioritize you, even if I'm a little tired, even if it inconvenienced me, because recognizing that your need is more urgent than mine in this moment. So it's a lot more, um, it's a lot less like rigid than I think how a lot of people have been talking about boundaries, right? And it's a lot more fluid, right? And it's a lot more, it takes a lot more more thinking and it, it, it keeps you accountable to yourself and accountable to other people, right? And I had never learned about boundaries that way. I feel like I had either learned about boundaries as either you do whatever other people want and that's what makes you a good person or, you know, you set the boundary and you leave them out in the cold because you need to take care of yourself. Right. And so, you know, those kind of things where it's just like, there's a lot of things that if you're just a person in the world, you will not necessarily know, not because you're bad, but nobody tells you, nobody tells you all these things about creating connections to other people. And it sucks because obviously our connections are some of the biggest they're just the most important things in our lives. So why don't we teach each other? Why don't we, why don't we try? Why don't we take the time to invest in our relationship? Because there's no investment that will pay off more than your ability to deeply connect with others. What are some of the uh, secure attachment uh, behaviors and characteristics that we can look for or that we can begin to integrate and like implement in our current relationships? Yeah. So here's the big one, Sylvester. Um, I read this study that was like, picture yourself in a school cafeteria, right? Your friend who you usually sit next to is not there. 
you're like wondering, where's your friend? All of a sudden you look behind you and you see that your friend had dropped or spilled some milk on your shoulder, right? How do you interpret the situation? So the insecurely attached people, whether anxious or avoidant, anxious is, you know, you fear people will abandon you. So you cling avoidant. You kind of also feel fear people will reject you. So you push them away, right? They both interpreted this as something malevolent. Like my friend went out of their way to humiliate me and to harm me. And they both were more likely to say, I want to take revenge on my friend, right? I want to spill this milk back on them. The securely attached person said, I think it was an accident. My friend is clumsy. Oh, you know, it's okay. Like it's fine. Right. And there's this way that securely attached people are always giving people, assuming the best in people. They think people are like good, fundamentally good. They assume, and another thing, they assume that other people like them, right? So if a situation is ambiguous, if it's clear and you don't like a secure person, they'll receive that. But if it's ambiguous, right, they're going to start with assuming the best. And that really helps their friendships because, you know, there's a study on something called the acceptance prophecy that finds that when people are told to assume they'll be accepted, that actually makes them warmer and friendlier and more open, right? Whereas when we assume we're going to be rejected, we tend to engage in more behaviors that fundamentally make that true, right? If I think I'm going to be rejected, I think you don't like me. I'm going to be cold. I'm going to be withdrawn. Whether you like me or not, you're going to come to not like me because I'm fundamentally like rejecting you, right? And so there's this way that securely attached people just they tend to start with the assumption that people like them and they take that throughout their entire friendships. That makes them more likely to initiate friendships, less likely to end friendships. They can work through conflict without going into the spider flight reactivity mode. Um, it just pays off in so many different ways. As soon as you said, you know, you're sitting at your table and your friend comes and they, there's milk on you. I literally said to myself, damn, they must've tripped. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. Like that's literally what I said to myself, like, damn, they must have tripped, you know? Uh, and I can see how that could be interpreted as like, oh, man, this person poured milk on me to embarrass me, to make me look like a exactly. fool. Exactly. I, I could definitely see how that could be uh, a perception as well. And so I'm curious if we, before we move forward, if we, if we stay there for a second, if a person was listening and they said, yeah, my, that person spilled milk on me on purpose or they were trying to embarrass me. How do we begin to like repair or change that mindset so a person could eventually get to the point where they're like, oh, yeah, the friend just they just they just tripped. It was yeah. an accident. Like, what are some steps we could take to to heal that approach to kind of shift that perspective? Yeah. So as you can see from that story, right, like anxiously avoidantly attached people, they've learned from their relationships. There's also a genetic component that. Um, people can't be trusted, that people are kind of out to harm them, that people are rejecting them, right? But the problem with this is that most of our social interactions are ambiguous. People aren't telling you straight up, I like you, I hate you, you know? So what, what happens is that your internal processes that go on in your mind become more true than what reality actually is. So there's, there's such a high degree of potential for confirmation bias in our relationships because everything's ambiguous. So literally whatever I assume, I, I will continue to see that it's true. Whatever my assumption is, right? I'm going to see that it's true. Whether it's good, people like me, or whether it's bad, people hate me because it's totally ambiguous. There's there's mixed signals. There's good, there's bad because the people have other lives, right? So they might be busy or they might have something else going on, right? And you can easily interpret that as, look, they were going to reject me. I was right all along. Or you can interpret it as, oh yeah, they're busy, but they like actually like me and would love to hang out otherwise, right? So it's just so easy for your confirmation bias to happen. And that's the problem if you're anxiously or avoidantly attached, you don't actually receive when people love you and perceive you positively. And you don't actually perceive, like, I think this is a big struggle with particularly men in friendships. You don't perceive safety even when it's in front of you, right? You still think people might try to put you down or see you as a failure or reject you. Even when someone is completely safe, that's the, that's the assumption your body has coming into the interaction. So um, what can you do specifically? There's this um, framework from this psychologist, Rick Hansen, that I really like. He studies taking in the good, which is basically when you have a moment of safety in a relationship, it can be as small as someone smiling at you, 
someone nodding at you, someone seeming engaged with you, someone's eyes lighting up when they're talking to you, someone sharing something, revealing something to you, right? To actually pause, and his model is like, have the beneficial, it's called heal, have the beneficial experience, enriched it. So focus on it until it generates and stirs some sort of emotion, positive emotion in you. Um, And then you absorb it, which means picture that positive experience melting into your body and becoming a part of you. And then the last step is called linking, but I won't get into that because it doesn't as much relate to the situation. But every time you have an experience of safety in your social environment, begin to pause and savor it and receive it deeply and let it stir an emotion into you. Don't just let it pass you by. Don't be like, like for me, even with like, you know, my book comes out, people are congratulating me. I really try to just receive it and not just be like, oh, thanks. And then go on to the next thing. Right. And so being, because our brain, especially if we've experienced some sort of trauma in the past. And I think in some ways that's what insecure attachment is. Like you've experienced this, you know, trauma of people not being there for you. Your brain starts to scan for threat and scan for signs of rejection, right? And so Rick Hansen's work is about being as intentional about scanning for signs of safety as your brain by default is for scanning for moments of threat. And then what he argues is like, what is state becomes trait, what you practice all the time eventually just becomes part of your neural hardware so that your brain automatically is scanning more for experiences of safety. Yeah, that makes 100% sense to me. I've had the the great experience of having to like recover from traumatic experiences and literally having to reprogram my brain. And I remember when I was in my early early 20s and late teens, I felt exactly how you were describing, like consistently feeling like situations were threats and always feeling like I had to protect myself. And then, you know, doing doing the work as we say, um, working on my, my thought process and, and, and recognizing like, Hey, you know what? Like everybody's not out to get me. Like there are yeah. good people in the world. There are trustworthy people. And then obviously in the mid twenties, it was, it was hard to like, believe it. Cause you kind of start to believe it. But then like my late twenties and thirties, like I'm all the way on the other side where I'm like, yeah, it's like it's mostly good people. And I yeah. feel like what, I feel like that's really coming from me though. Mm. Cause I don't, I don't really have the evidence that it's good people or bad people. Like, exactly. I just feel like it's mostly good people. And then my interactions now in my late twenties and thirties have been mostly good because I feel like mm. because of that mindset. So Sylvester, can you tell me, I know you said you've done some work mm-hmm. and change your thoughts. What would you say is the one thing if you had to choose out of all the work that you've done that helped really change your mindset around the nature of people? I would say that it was two things. Um, that I will label as forgiveness and empathy. Mm. Um, and where that came from is in my, in my origin story, in my family system, I was a firstborn. And so I remember my first memories were, were loving my mother, father, playing with each other, flirting with each other, laughing, joking. Um, touch was always safe. Um, and it was like what we would, you know, and I use the word perfect lightly, but it was like a perfect family system. You know, um, and then my brother and sister came and I, every time I tell this story, I feel like I'm blaming my brother and sister, but I am not blaming my brother and sister. I'm just noting the timeline. When my brother and sister came, the family system changed and it, it then became a very like toxic. Um, there became physical abuse, you know, what I feel like was psychological abuse. There became the alcoholism where before, before that wasn't an issue. And so I got to experience two different family systems, like very healthy, secure attachment, and then every the complete opposite. And so my teens, I was deep in confusion, in anger, and in my wounds. And so like, I would lash out at school, Um, I would also do very poorly, even though I was a gifted student. So like, if you looked at my report cards in high school, uh, at least the first two years of high school, it was all A's and all F's. Mm. And any educator knows that a student who's getting all A's and all F's, like there's something going on because it's uncommon. That's very uncommon. Um, And what the issue, I figured this out like 10 years after, after I left school is all of my F's and and my D's, they were my classes that I had sixth period and under. So sixth, seventh and eighth period, 
because the anxiety of going home was starting to get to me. Oh, so I could wow. no longer focus on being in school because mm. I was like trembling and I was in fear. But when I first got to school at 8, 15 a.m., um, those classes were easy to me because I could focus, I could pay attention. That was the reason why. Uh, and then obviously like my junior and senior year, I, I, I had all, all A's and B's because I, I found sports and found purpose. And, you know, I, I kind of started working through it. But when I got to my 20s, what it was, it was it was forgiveness because I forgave my parents because mm. there was a time where I felt like they abandoned me. They left me. Um, and I say empathy because that's when I began to get out of like the egocentric way of looking at life. Like mm. this is my story. This is my pain. My parents hurt me. And I, I leaned into empathy where I was like, OK, what did my parents go through? Yeah. What changed? What did they experience? And then once I really leaned into that, I was able to recognize like, wow, my dad was probably dealing with a lot of shame when he got his DUI. Mm. He probably was dealing with a lot of fear and a lot of regret. Right. My mother had to leave her job to take, you know, my father to work. So she was probably dealing with identity loss, mm. you know, being a black woman who was thriving in corporate America in the early 90s. And she literally had to give that up. She mm. probably had a lot of identity loss, a lot of purpose loss as well yeah you know she was probably dealing with like who am I you know and you know when I was deep in my pain and in my wounds I, I would have never been able to even think that but when yeah. I began to forgive them and get into empathy then I was able to kind of get pieces of their story and see what they were going through and then it, it released me from like this egocentric way of seeing life and that just began like that was the beginning of my healing process is when I began to forgive them yeah, I love that. I really do. Um, I I just, I hear what you're saying and I'm like, there is this way that when we are in deep pain, we are, um, I use the word like narcissistic in a way. A narcissistic feels not quite right, but, but very self-absorbed because like we don't have the resources to consider other people, right? And so in our moments of like deep pain, it's like, it takes resources to think about someone else's reality, right? And when you just feel like I don't have the resources, I'm drowning, we can just be so like in our own worlds because of that. And I, you know, Sylvester, me too, you know, there's been a lot of times, especially in my 20s, where I thought someone was hurting me and I didn't realize how I was hurting people because <laughs> I was really in, in my pain. So I love what you're saying about empathy being healing in some ways, it's healing to decenter ourselves. It's healing to make ourselves, um, you know, a force in this story rather than the entire story. Like it's healing to, um, yeah, it's almost not intuitive that it can be healing to like step back from ourselves a little bit rather than being so ingrained in ourselves that that's the only reality that we see. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting because it's like if you make yourself the main character, then everything is happening to you then everything's personal, right? <laughs> you it's take like everything's personal. personal. Yeah. Right? You're, you're the antagonist or the protagonist, but everything is happening to you. Exactly. But if you kind of peel back and you're just like a side character in a bigger story, now you can literally see the entire plot. And it's like, oh, wow, yeah. actually not much is happening to me. You know, yeah, I'm experiencing that, things. Yeah, for sure. Not to dismiss anybody's experience, but like, yeah, I don't have to take any of this personally. And that is what I feel like so aligned with just coming back to what I was saying about secure attachment, right? You see the bird's eye view of reality. You don't just see your reality because you're not in as much pain in some ways. And, you know, you are not taking things personally. You're assuming that people like you and it's, you know, I think empathy is a great, a great medium through which to become secure as well. What's, what's your perspective on, uh, you know, and I know, I know you talk about this in the book, you know, you, you we're in the era of distraction, burnout, chaos. Uh, and I feel like those are all perfect descriptors of what, man, what I, what I feel like it's been, at least since I've left college, I left college in, in 2010. And I feel like it's been like a blink of an eye since then. And, you know, when I listen to my friends, when I listen to people that I support, just listening to conversations, I hear a lot of that, just people being overworked, overwhelmed, being burnt out. And then obviously we had the, you know, the pandemic and then a financial crisis, like inflation. And it's just, it, it just feels like it's been, at least in the last 
12 years, it feels like it's been one thing after another. And if you go a little bit further, I mean, the 2008 crash, you know, Mm -hmm. um, I personally didn't experience that because I was a broke college student. So I was (laughs) I was already poor. (laughs) Mm, (laughs) Um, So I'm just kind of curious. It's like. For the people who are going through these life crises, these external things happening outside of them. And they just feel like they don't have the energy to keep friendships, to maintain friendships because, you know, they're just trying to get by. They're just trying to get enough for gas. They're just trying to get enough for rent. Like recognizing that like me and you recognize the power of community and connection and friendship. Like how do we get those people who are trying to take care of like basic needs to recognize that friendship is also a basic need? And connection is also a basic need. I like that. Yeah, I I think this is a great question. And I just want to acknowledge that you're right. Society makes it really hard. And um, we have actually been getting lonelier for decades, right? And when we see, I think, these trends that if everybody's suffering from something, we can't say everybody's failing, right? We need to look at the larger systemic issues. We, we've we been getting lonelier for decades and we are at our loneliest now. It's harder to find connection than it really ever has been. And I think my book is, is kind of saying we can swim upstream against this, right? If you want, and if you have these abilities, but the fact is the stream is not taking us in the right direction, right? With the amount of, we have to work with, you know, just how difficult it is to have time for yourself, to have dif- how difficult it is to prioritize your connections with all these other responsibilities that are put on our shoulders. So I just want to acknowledge that that you're right. And if people are like, oh my gosh, I'm so overwhelmed already by all the things that I have to do. And it's so hard um, that it is. <laughs> you're right. You know, it hasn't always been this hard. It used to be a lot easier. Our communities were built in, not sought after. You know, people were living in the same communities their whole life. They naturally came to know their neighbor, right? Before people kind of started moving for work and moving to work in factories. So it used to be that this was just uh, folded into your life, that friendship was very much organically a part of your life. Um, and it's not now. And friendship, I would say, does not happen organically in our current structure, in our current society, in at least the United States. So that's the first thing I would say, that that's valid. The second thing I would say is that really connection is such a resource. Like when we're connected, right, our mental health is improved. Our physical health is improved. Loneliness is one of the biggest predictors of mortality, um, even more so than your diet, even more so than how much you exercise. There was another study that found that like when people, when kids moved up in their socioeconomic status, one of the biggest predictors was whether they made friends with someone of a different socioeconomic status. So the fact is, Sylvester, I love how you put it that friendship and connection is a basic need, but it also facilitates all your basic needs, right? Like if you have friendship and connection, you have someone to rely on. If I don't have enough money for this, I have someone to say, you know, Hey, can you help me out? Or, you know, um, let's, let's share food, right? Like you can also have this instrumental resources with other people. So I would say like, almost like if you can be creative enough and you can be audacious enough, you can sort of Um, collaborate with connections in getting some of those basic needs met for you, right? Even in the workplace, right? Like, is there a way that we can work smarter and not harder to divide this work in ways that won't add work to either one of us and will make things easier on us? And honestly, it's just like connection, for example, is is because it centers us because it makes it's like we need food we need water we need oxygen to feel like we're functioning right but we also need connection and we don't always realize that but like for example there's a study that found that like even having a conversation with someone makes people perform better on tasks that are similar to like IQ tests right so functioning at work like having people that you feel connected to at work is going to make you a better employee or that when you look at a hill and evaluate how steep it is you evaluate it as less steep when you're with a friend suggesting that we perceive challenges as less challenging when we have connection. So there is just the way that connection is going to soften the blow of all of the heavy and difficult difficulties that you have in your life. And I would say it's actually the number one resource that we have to soften the blow of all of the the true and valid difficulties that we face in our society. Yeah. And like everything is harder alone. Exactly. This idea, this like this like new age American idea of like 
I'm a self-made millionaire or I made it all on my own. Or when I hear those things, it just, it like, it triggers, a, it triggers something in me uh, where I just want to argue with the person, <laughs> you know, like, are you, are you really, you know, like I want to debate them. Right. Um, because I just don't believe in terms like that. Like to me, everything is interdependent. If you did become the quote unquote self-made millionaire, uh, you did that with your customers. Exactly. Like you literally needed the customers to do an exchange with you of a product service, whatever it was. Right. Um, I, 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 I find just like our language puts us in, in this like individualistic player one, like narcissistic view of the world. And it's like, it seems like when you listen to people's value system, the most important thing to them is like, I need to get these degrees. I need to get this money. I need to advance. Yep. You know, like even when you ask people to hang out sometimes, it's like, hey, you want to go do this? You want to do that? Oh, no, I need to go work. I need to pick up these extra hours. And like, again, like I want to definitely note that I understand trying to take care of your basic needs and, and making sure that, you know, you take care of your responsibilities. I, I don't want to negate that. Uh, but I do feel like some people are putting in overtime or doing extra when it might not be necessary. Yeah. And it feels like the sacrifice is connection is friendship. Absolutely. Yep. I think, you know, I've been guilty of this too, feeling like, oh, if I'm spending time connecting, that's taking away from my time to work. But really it's work that's taking away from my time to connect. Because as a human being, that's like my most fundamental of needs is to be connected with people. Like, you know, we think of it like, oh, I had like time off work, right? But no, work is my time off connection and life. Like it's just, I think understanding how fundamental connection is for us has like, it just shifts my mindset where instead of looking at, oh, connection as a new nuisance that gets in the way of my goals, oh, connection is the goal, right? It's not the means to the end. It's not the obstacle to the end. It is the end, right? Because if I get to an end, but I'm lonely and isolated, that end will not fulfill me, right? And even the things you're talking about, Sylvester, like often we don't even realize that we're being driven by connection, right? That self-made person, that person that's trying to get all the degrees, they want to be valued and esteemed by others, right? Like mm. that's part of the driving force why you're doing all of these things and pushing away your connections along the way, not even knowing that your implicit unconscious need all along the way is to connect with people fundamentally. Never even thought about it like that. You just gave me uh, another argument point. So I, I know I'm going to get into an argument in like the next week or something. I like to, <laughs> I like to call them debates because they're not really arguments. They're, they're a debate, you know? I, yeah. like to, I like to see what people think about the, the, the way that they think. So I yeah. like to look at it as like a debate, not necessarily an argument. Hello, my friend. I would like to invite you to support the podcast. Go to sylvestermcnutt.net slash podcast. SylvesterMcNutt.net slash podcast and you could subscribe to the podcast it's $8.88 this money will go towards the web service that I use my engineer everything that we need to edit and everything that we need to bring you the best show possible if you're a supporter of what we're doing and you love the work here you can support for $8.88 at SylvesterMcNutt.net slash podcast now let's get back to the episode so what would you say to a person who wants to, because I know you did a TEDx talk and you were talking mm -hmm. about creating, um, creating like a group, like a friendship group. Yep. And so I'm, I'm in a men's group. We've been meeting for the last three years. Every Tuesday we meet, we talk, Ooh, we read it. books together. We've done yoga together. Um, and I we're meeting it. up in Hawaii in December. For okay, the first tell time. us how you found this group because I get a lot of men contacting me wanting something <laughs> like that in their lives. <laughs> So we, we, we just made it. Uh, my buddy, Mark Groves, he made it. He just came to me and he's like, hey, I'm putting together a men's group. We got to talk about some hard shit. I'm getting eight or nine guys. Are you in? I'm like, of course I'm in. Like, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Man, it's such a resource to have that friend who's going to be like, let's do the group. <laughs> that could be anyone, any of us, by the way. <laughs> yeah. And I know you talked about that in your TED talk. So like, I'm just yep. curious, like, how do we approach that? Obviously, a lot of people are going to have fear and anxiety about it. So yeah. like, how do we even begin to create the group? So here's what you do. Because I definitely had fear and anxiety. Um, 
So what I did was I met up with just one friend and now I have like a ton of groups. Like I've literally have groups for every, I had La Cena, La Cena to practice our Spanish once a month. I've had a book writing critique group where we critique each other's writing. I've had, um, you know, my wellness group where we meet up to practice wellness each week. I have a biweekly dinner club. I've had the life hustle group where we meet up to work on things that are not related to like our central jobs, but are like hobbies or interests we want to pursue. So I am like all about the groups. I love the groups. Like it keeps you accountable. It keeps you motivated and it gives you social connection. So it's just like everything good in one for me, like the groups being in a group of people that I love. Like, first of all, I think a lot of us have like a single friend here, a single friend there and kind of miss a group like we've had like in college. Right. And so that is why these groups are so valuable. Cause I think there's this, I mean, there's actually a form of loneliness called like collective loneliness, which is the desire to be part of a group working towards a common goal. So I think we almost get lonely without a group in some way, because we, as pack animals, we have this like need to be experiencing things together, working towards a common goal, goal with people. So that you know, there's a lot of great reasons to have the group. Um, but how do you go about starting the group? So for me, my first group was the wellness group where we met up each week and we meditated, we cooked, we did yoga, we read books, like each person would, would take over for a week and figure out what our activity is and, and lead us all in it. And I went to one friend, Heather, and I said, Heather, now I was thinking about this like wellness group. Like, what do you think? Um, we meet up each week, we practice wellness and Heather was in. And so having one person have buy-in felt really good. And it felt a lot less intimidating then for us to be like, oh, let's each of us invite people into this group now, right? Instead of it all being on me. So I like that kind of getting a co-leader or like a vice president for your group, if you're the one who wants to initiate the group and then putting the responsibility on both of you, because that feels like, it's almost like if you feel scared of having a birthday that no one will come, but then you decide to have your birthday with a friend. And now it's like, well, if no one comes, we, at least we got each other, right? Um, and it's it's it becomes really easy because at that point, if it was me and Heather, if each of us invites just one friend, we then have an entire group. So Take the pressure off. I think bring in someone else, have them invite people to, and then you have your group. So how do you manage all these groups? I love hearing that you have all these <laughs> groups, like especially coming from literally the best-selling author of Platonic. I'm like, of course she would have all these groups. Like this is what she does. So like, yep. how do you kind of manage the groups? And like, what do you yeah. get out of them? Just you personally? Yeah. So, um, I probably have two groups running right now. And the magic of the group is that it kind of runs itself, right? It'll be like every Tuesday, we're going to meet up and we know where we're going to meet. Like we just make one plan and we repeat it over time. So like the coordination and the logistical issues of friendship, if you're like, sometimes I think you could not have friends because you're not good at coordinating. <laughs> like it's a real part of like friendship, that coordination thing. So the nice thing about the group is that you can decide on your first meeting and just continue to replicate that over time. Or what we do is we rotate. So like each time one person will take over, one person will cook for everyone, one person will host, one person will decide on the activities. And then it feels pretty easy because let's say you have six people in this group, you're only deciding once every other month on something you have to do for this group. So it is that kind of shared resource thing that we were talking about. Um, but what I think I get from the groups, first of all, like, if you have a goal or an aspiration in life, wherever you want, whatever you want out of life, like I just think it's so important to do it in a group because fundamentally, like for example, I could be really great at writing a book, but I'm not gonna know all the great writing tips that there is. And so for to have four intelligent minds critiquing me on this and being able to incorporate the wisdom of four different people, like it just makes me so much better. Like having the group will really, really elevate you in whatever it is that you're doing. Um, so I think whatever your goal is, make sure you're not pursuing it alone. Like I made that mistake when I became a professor, I felt like this was before I was on my connection kick. I had so much pressure to like succeed in the tenure track and always be working on research. And, and I felt like, oh, if I'm spending time connecting with my colleagues, I'm not writing, right? But the thing was, I would see how, because these colleagues had connections to each other, one of them would put the other on a grant, right? Or one of them would write an article and then put the other person on the article. And so what I found was 
oh, me working at this alone and thinking, oh, this gives me more time to work actually doesn't make me more successful. It makes me less successful because sharing resources is what really makes people successful. So that I will say is the merit of the group, but it doesn't have to be like a professionally oriented group. I think I still get a ton out of um, having a group that's just focused on like having dinner together or having fun together, like my wellness group, because in some ways it like, it expands your sense of your identity in some ways. Like, I think there's like a special side of yourself that comes out in groups that doesn't come out with people one-on-one. I think it also like, there's something about feeling like you belong that happens in a group, I think, that doesn't necessarily happen with one person, right? Like, it's like, we, we feel like we belong when we have this community that we feel connected to and we feel understood by and we feel close to. Like, it's those deep feelings of like, belonging that I think can happen through the group specifically. Yeah, I love that. I mean, one of the theories that I believe in is having something bigger than yourself, you know, to work towards or to fight for, you know, or to stand on. And, you know, when you first started talking, you made me think about, you know, when I was playing football in high school, college football, arena football, I can't say that everybody, you know, it's a hundred guys on a team. I can't say I have a hundred friends. I probably had one or two friends while I was on the team, but just knowing like you're walking in the stadium with a hundred people and you guys have one goal, you're trying to win a game, you know? Um, And then it's like, Oh, you see, you see guys in class or you see them at a party. You just see them down the street. And it's like, you don't necessarily know everything about them, but it's like, Oh, I know him. Hey, what's up, man. How you doing? You know, like it gives you such a feeling of belonging. Even yep. though it's not the most the, the the deepest relationship, it definitely helps you feel like you belong. Is there a difference in loneliness when it's like, okay, you have a partner, you have a, a husband, a wife, but you don't have friendships and you, yeah. you feel lonely, yep. or vice versa? It's like you have a few, you have a group of friends, but maybe they're not really deep friendships, and you don't have a partner, so you feel lonely. Is there like a difference in the loneliness there? Yeah, um, I think we all need connection, but, and we all need community, I'll say. So we need more than just one connection, but it doesn't matter the form that it comes in. I I truly believe that. Um, and there's just a lot of more creative ways people have been talking about friendships recently, like having a friend as a life partner and using, I guess, the kind of script that we use for romance in terms of building your life around with someone doing that with a friend too. And I think that's certainly possible. But I think for a lot of us, our script is, I'm gonna get married and then kind of shed a lot of friendships and and really focus on this person and become a little bit more insular. And here's what happens, like according to the research from that. When you don't have friends, you're less resilient to issues within your marriage specifically for women who tend to have close friends, right? That ability to go out and say, oh my gosh, I'm struggling with this to someone else re-centers you so you can come back to your marriage from a centered, non-reactive, non-fight or flight place, right? Other research finds that if I make a friend, not only am I less depressed, but my spouse is also less depressed. Um, That if I get into conflict in my marriage, it it dysregulates my release of the stress hormone cortisol. All of a sudden my stress hormone release is kind of all over the place, but not if I had quality connection outside the marriage, right? Then that, that conflict doesn't affect me as deeply. And for those people that basically only keep their connection to a spouse as their only form of connection, what happens is when there's natural ebbs and flows in that relationship, they're so much more devastated. Their mental health is much more affected than people who have quality connection outside of their marriage. Um, And so fundamentally, I think from reading this research that to have a healthy marriage, like each of you kind of needs friends, (laughs) right? Like we just, we're social creatures. We've always need an entire community to feel whole. Um, And that is true. And that, you know, and it's funny because I had this woman reach out to me because I I wrote this article on all the research for psychology today. And she was kind of telling me, you know, I felt like things weren't right in my marriage and I wasn't sure what to attribute it to. And I felt like kind of sad for like a year, but then I like made really close friends with someone. I made a really close friend and I felt that sense of adventure and I felt myself broad and I felt myself come back to life. And I'm so happy that I didn't take that experience to mean there was something wrong with my spouse because I was unfulfilled, 
right? I'm so happy that instead I use that information of being unfulfilled to signify that maybe I need more support rather than just him, right? And so I think there is this way that our marriage is so much more centered and sustainable when we're able to say, you're not who I'm going to for everything, which means I'm not going to blame you when you can't be my everything. I'm going to be able to accept you more deeply because I can get my needs met elsewhere too. Yeah, I, I love that. That aligns totally with um, everything I've always thought. So it's so good to hear uh, that you found the research that supports that. Because it's like, if you just think on of it on a very, very generic level, for example, the Dodgers play today. I'm going to watch three hours of baseball today. My girl doesn't give a damn about baseball <laughs> or the Dodgers. Uh-huh. But, you know, she'll come in. She'll kind of, she'll be like, oh, yeah, go Dodgers, right? Yeah. Thursday, she's got a new reality show that comes out. There's like, it's like about dating and like blind dates. I don't <laughs> care at all. She I don't like care. Me. Yes. You yes. know, but then it's like, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll watch it with you. I'm going to watch the first episode with her and I'm not going to watch it anymore. Exactly. Right? Like but let each other her, off the hook. <laughs> yeah, Her and her girlfriends, they have a whole group thread where they're talking about you know, this show and the contestants and who needs to be on and, you know, and me and my guys, we're talking about who's getting a hit, who's getting a home run. Exactly. The Padres. It's like, you know, and I'm, and I'm, I'm speaking from like a heterosexual normative lens here, but it's like, as men and women, we're into different things. So mm-hmm. like, I feel like I would be foolish to expect my girl to be into the Lakers, into the Dodgers, into the NFL. Like, exactly. The, the I'm into, and me and my guys just bond over where yes. it's like, you know, and vice versa. Like, I'm not watching a reality show. Mm-hmm. Know, I, I will on Thursday because I said I'm going to. <laughs> that, I'm yes. off the hook. <laughs> exactly. You're off the hook because your partner has friends, which is amazing. And that's, and what you're saying, I think, too, gets at one of the purposes of friendship is to expand and enrich our sense of our own identity, right? To feel full and whole in who we are. Because if you're just around your partner and she's watching the reality TV shows and you're really into the Dodgers and that's your only source of support and connection, that part of you that really loves sports and watching sports, it's gonna wither a little bit because you don't have an outlet to fully express that, right? And so when we can have an entire community, it's like, oh, I can express this side of myself and this side of myself and that side of myself, right? I'm fuller, I'm wholer, I'm richer, I'm more dimensional because I choose to have an entire community of people in my life. Yeah, I I love that. I love that. I feel like I actually have like goosebumps thinking about it and just, because I feel like it's gonna, when people hear this, I feel like this is gonna help people so much with their like romantic relationship because I feel like people will take it as an invitation. Like, damn, you know what? I do need to see my friends more. Why do you need to call my my people more? Because it makes those connections better and it makes, you know, the romantic relationship better. And I remember in your TED talk, you were talking about just like our value system, how it's kind of switched, how we put more emphasis on the romantic is like, and like, that's the priority. Like, that's the most important relationship. Like that's the Mm -hmm. one we talk about and how that's kind of like a new thing in, in, in human history. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Of course. Yeah. So, um, you know, first of all, asexual scholars have been really great in differentiating the different types of love that we have. So romantic love, right? I idealize you. I'm yearning for you. I, you thrill me, right? That is not necessarily sexual love, right? We can feel that with our friends. Like, you know, if women typically, you hear them talk about their friends, they'll be like, that person is my soulmate. I could spend every day with them. You know, they're the greatest person ever. Um, this, These are things that sound kind of romantic. And that's because romance has historically been a part of friendship. Like before, like, let's say like 1700s and before, mid 1800s and before, people were getting married to get resources. Like, oh, it makes sense for our families to combine. We can share resources. Your name is, you have a good reputation. I want that to be combined with my name. Your family member would kind of choose someone for you. Love was not central to marriage. Romance was not central to marriage. And in fact, along that, those around that time in the Western world, the genders were considered so distinct that the assumption was if you want deep connection, you have to turn to people of your gender because you have this you know, gender experience in common. So around that time, People would hold hands with their friends, write love letters to their friends, share beds with their friends. Like friendship was so romantic, unabashedly. So I think it still is kind of romantic, but now it's a lot more like stigmatized because it gets mixed up with homophobia. Um, And so 
what sort of changed things was around 1867. Before then, it was like very taboo, obviously, to have sex with someone of the same sex, but there wasn't such a thing as sexual orientation as a form of identity, right? It wasn't like there's all these, this entire constellation of behaviors that mark you as someone who has this sexual orientation. And then Richard Von Kraft Ebbing, Sigmund Freud, two psychiatrists that wanted to argue that if you love someone of the same gender, you have, um, if you're having sex with someone of the same gender, you have this whole disordered identity, right? Something went awry in your childhood. And they created this concept of sexual orientation. And all of a sudden, now that it was an identity, it's not just having sex that's taboo. It's anything that could suggest this identity, like holding hands, like the cuddling, like the sharing a bed, like the even being too affectionate, right? And so after that, 1867, Friendship really began to change. All of a sudden, people questioned, should I be doing this with my friends? Is it appropriate, right? Do I have this sort of disordered, very very homophobic view um, of identity? And so then people felt like, oh, I can't, I want intimacy with friends, but I can't express it because then people might accuse me of, you know, of being gay, which, you know, obviously is not an issue, <laughs> um, but right, they don't want to experience that stigma and they don't want to experience that shame. And I would say that still affects us literally to this day. Like if you look at specifically men's friendships before 1867, they're like cuddling with each other. They're taking pictures in each other's arms. The football team is, is lug, laying in each other's arms and hugging each other. Frederick Douglass says like, that nothing shook my decision to leave the plantation more than leaving my friends, like the types of things people wrote to their friends, the love letters that they wrote to their friends, right? Like this was all so, so normal. And I like having this historical lens because it shows me that it still is normal to have these feelings towards your friend. We unnecessarily stigmatize it, particularly for men, to the extent that it gets very hard to experience deep intimacy in our friendships because we almost think something's wrong if we love our friends too deeply. And it's just, I think it's, it's a shame. And, and it's, it's, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways that now we see friendship as like an inferior relationship compared to back then. And then once we, once we think that way, we actually treat it as inferior, right? I, I share less love with my friends. I'm less vulnerable with my friends. I'm not as intentional about reaching out to them. And any, any relationship that you treat that way is not going to be as deep, but we don't realize how like, oh, we're actually driving that rather than friendship being an inferior relationship inherently, right? Like look at the ways you're treating your friends versus the other relationships that you really privilege. And maybe that'll help you figure out why your friendships are more shallow. So yeah, history tells us friendship has been deep and it has been profound and also suggests that like, we can still get back to that. Thank you so much for writing Platonic, uh, for pouring your, your heart and soul into it, for getting the data. Thank you for coming on the podcast way before you even had the book done. So, <laughs> you know, the listeners here can kind of see the whole journey play out. Um, it's an honor to speak to you. You're a New York Times bestselling author. That's a big deal. Yes. You get to say that for the rest of your life that, you know, you did something that's very rare and unique. Um, and just as, a, as an author myself, I'm, I'm looking at you as like, wow, like I'm just impressed, you know? So I just wanted to, to give you that love. Um, everyone listening, go get the book Platonic. You know, this world that we're in right now, they, they, they want us stressed. They want us to be alone, mm-hmm. uh, but we need connection. We need community. And this book Platonic is gonna help us uh, be better because we can all be better. And that's not to put anyone down. That's not to shame anybody, but we can all be better. And what Marissa has done in this book is really given us a blueprint for how we can improve, how we can understand ourselves better, as well as how we can attach and love our friends in a much better way. So go get Platonic. Great book. I got mine on the way. I can't wait till it gets here. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Sylvester. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Free Your Energy podcast. Reviews are everything. Please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope this helped you. I hope it served you. And I hope you continue to free your energy.